You are listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation. Well, this morning I'm excited about beginning a new course of study, God's Clock, a doctrinal course. We want to know what we believe. Because if you don't know what you believe and someone else does, then they may be able to convince you to believe something that's not true. So we want to know what the Bible says. We'll be following the Bible closely. The original design of this outline was made by a friend of mine, Norris Anderson, with Cornerstone Ministry. Uh, he was a former missionary in the Philippines. He had the um, privilege of writing the biology section of the ACT score a long time ago when he was an evolutionist. But then he came to the Lord and became a creationist and has been a great teacher and mentor to me. So we'll be following his outline and it's going to look like this. One o'clock today is creation. And actually, if you look on your study guide, you'll see the major views of creation, the usage in Genesis 1 of the word create, but then the Trinity in creation we will take next Sunday. So we'll be covering the first two sections of our outline. At two o'clock, we'll look at the doctrine of sin. At three o'clock, the incarnation. Four o'clock, Christ's atonement. Five o'clock, His resurrection. God's call at six o'clock. Seven o'clock, conversion. Eight o'clock, justification. Nine o'clock, sanctification. Ten o'clock, perseverance, or we might call that preservation. And then 11 o'clock, the return of Christ. And 12 o'clock, eternity. Now, from a human point of view, what would be the first action that we could perceive that God has taken in relation to us? I think we would agree that it would be the creation. Because if we're not created, then we're not here to do this study this morning. Have you thought about the uniqueness of what God created. It's truly amazing. The earth is just the right size, not too large, not too small, so that the heat within the core of the earth doesn't fry everything on the surface or allow everything to freeze. The earth is at a 23 degree axis and that's where it needs to be if we're going to have the seasons that we have. And again, if it's not too hot or too cold. The earth is unique in that it's 70% water on the surface of the earth. Water is in all of life and it's necessary for life. The moon, we understand, controls the tides on earth by its gravitational pull, but it also stabilizes the earth's axis in rotation. And we have an unusually large moon and think about this. The moon is the perfect size and distance for a solar eclipse. Have you ever seen a solar eclipse? The moon covers up the sun, but you can still see the solar flares on the outside of the sun, but it's the perfect size so that you can visualize those flares. That's how we discovered that they were there. The earth is in an orbit around the sun that carries through 584 million miles every year at a thousand miles an hour. It is consistent to five thousandths of a second 
in accuracy as the years go by. The earth is going to be on time. The earth is in basically a circular orbit. If it were a little bit elliptical, the perihelion would be too close to the sun and the aphelion would be too far away from the sun and we would either freeze or we would fry if there were just a 2.5% deviation in the uh, circular orbit of the earth around the sun. The solar system that we're part of has other planets that are also basically in a circular orbit, a little bit elliptical, but not as much as a lot of planets that are out there. And if that were not so, they would pull us out of our orbit and we would quickly be in trouble living on the surface of the earth. So we're just right at the right place in the solar system. And then we're also at the right place with regard to the sun. The sun gives off to the earth 0.45 billionths of its energy. And that would be about 35,000 horsepower to each one of us in energy each day. That's just a very small fraction of the energy that comes out of the sun. But we are just the right distance to receive that energy and get a good suntan on a bright day and enjoy uh, the benefit of that warmth. Then we're also in the right place in our galaxy. Our sun and solar system are in a stable orbit. Now you've seen the galaxy and it looks like a pinwheel and it has these spirals. Well, we're not caught up in those spirals of debris and gas. If we were, then the heavens wouldn't be declaring the glory of God because we couldn't see it. We are in a stable orbit in that galaxy that's also turning. And if you look at all these things, and if we had an astrophysicist giving this lesson this morning, he could tell you many amazing facts that makes us unique in the universe. Some would say the doctrine of creation is insignificant. We don't often hear a sermon on creation. So we tend to put it way back on the shelf because it might be just a little bit embarrassing. Because all Christians who say we're Christians don't agree on creation. So we don't want anything that's too embarrassing, so we don't look at it. Well, today we want to look at what the Bible says about creation. Now, if you wanted to identify an important doctrine without just giving a verse of the Scripture, how would you do so? How do we know creation is an important doctrine? Well, I would say take a look at the way the world attacks that doctrine. The world is not too concerned about our baptism, are they? They don't care if we're sprinkled, dumped, dipped, or poured. It's just no big deal to them. And perhaps that's uh, not one of the most important doctrines, the mode of baptism. Baptism is certainly important. But creation is something <clears throat> that the world makes an all-out assault upon. Now let's go back in church history and ask for the early church, they didn't have a problem with creation, but there was an assault. The great attack came on the person and work of Christ. Who was Christ? 
And the early church spent a lot of time formulating statements like the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. in order to correct the heresies that were creeping in. Arius was a presbyter of the Church of Alexandria. He denied the deity of Christ by saying that Christ was created by the Father. He was the first one that was created. If you believed in the deity of Christ to him, that would be slipping back into polytheistic paganism. And so he felt strongly that Christ was not divine. He was not uh, equal with the Father. And so the Nicene Creed clarified that by saying that Christ was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being one substance with the Father. The church had to go to work to define its position. In Deuteronomy 13 and verse 3, we are instructed not to listen to the words of a false prophet. False prophets have a purpose though. According to that verse, they are sent to test us. And they test our faith. So in that sense, heresy might be a good thing. God says all things are going to work together for good. And we could see that the good of heresy would be to cause us in the church to define our position and put it into words so that we understand what we believe. And so that what we believe can be taught to a new generation coming along that is receiving the challenges of the culture with regard to the truth of Bible doctrine. Well, what would be under attack in the Reformation? Uh, the Reformation... In, in the Reformation, the great doctrine under attack was the atonement. And that was one reason that we had the Reformation, because there were so many erroneous ideas about the completeness and sufficiency of the death of Christ. And we'll take a look at that further when we come to the atonement. How do you attain salvation? We would say by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Scripture alone. But there were some distortions in the church at that time. And a tremendous amount of energy was spent in the, Re in the Reformation to clarify this doctrine of the atonement. What would we say is under attack today? The Bible, the very foundation of our faith. Now, if you consider the writings of Martin Luther, he never says that the Bible is the inherent Word of God. He acts that way, but he didn't talk about it. Why? Because everybody believed the Bible was the Word of God in that day. The Lutherans, the Calvinists, the Roman Catholics, there was not a problem with it. But today, when we say the Bible is inerrant, we have to watch it because people will work their way around that. And we have to say, well, it is infallible. God, what God has said is going to come true, and the Bible is reliable. But then our culture said, well, you, you can have the Bible for religious things, but it's not true with regard to science or history. And then pretty soon it's not true with regard to law and morals. We can't depend upon it, according to the culture, in many ways, many challenges, and so pretty soon we're left with the Bible separated from all of life. And it's just a religious thing that we do when we're down here at church on Sunday morning. That battle is being raged today. 
being waged today. Here is an article posted by Joel Taylor. And it says, uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, and Frontiers are under fire for producing Bibles that remove Father, Son, and Son of God because these terms are offensive to Muslims. According to some, Christians are being set up to convert to Islam. Wycliffe is denying any such action. However, the facts seem to indicate otherwise. And the facts are that a number of churches have withdrawn their support from Wycliffe and some denominations. Because to remove Father and Son and Son of God seems to depreciate the gospel. Well, that battle is raging today. Then there is another great attack going on today, and that's the attack on creation. How many people, even in the church, really have a biblical view of creation? Very few. Even in the evangelical church. When you lose a full and complete view of creation, you lose a lot of other things as well. And you have to kind of push against a lot of other scriptures other than what we read in Genesis 1. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now let's consider the major views of creation. I realize that this would be a little review for some of you, but we felt that this material was so important that we wanted everyone to hear it and have opportunity to study it. Well, here's the first one that we'll look at. God or spirit of some sort is all there is in the world. That's it. A God or spirit of some sort existed in the past, always, and will exist on into the future. There's nothing else. Anyone know a popular example of this view? How about uh, Christian science? which in my opinion would be neither Christian nor science. But Mary Baker Eddy, the founder, writes in her book, Science and Health. And by the way, if you're going to check this out in study, you've got to go back to some of the original writings because some of these things are kind of covered up now. Here's what she says, and I quote, God is all in all. God is good. God is mind. God, spirit, being all. Nothing is matter. Now, she didn't say nothing is the matter. She said nothing is matter. Matter is not spirit, so it doesn't exist. So disease and sin and death and evil really do not exist. Only that which is good exists. And you see some variations of that with the Buddhist and Hindu religion. Spirit is all there is. Matter is just an illusion. Practically speaking, what do you think that would give rise to if you had a culture that held that worldview? Non-science. If there's nothing there, why would you want to study it? And we see as we look at the development of science that that's the way it's worked. Now, of course, in our day, science and the benefits of science have been imported from those cultures that developed it and it's all over the world now. But if we go back to look at science, we see where it came from, and we see that because of the Reformation, a reasonable God, it was said, had created a reasonable universe, 
And man, by use of his reason, could examine what's there and arrive at some conclusions regarding the order of the universe. And we see in the Bible that the universe had a beginning and then it's going somewhere in terms of a linear view of history. And it's because of that worldview that we have many blessings that we enjoy today. And if you do a good scientific study of that, you can see a lot of the blessings that came to us out of the Reformation. It's a particular worldview that you have that make you see things a certain way. Now you've heard of Batman, and you've heard of Superman, but have you heard of Peanut Man? There he is right there, George Washington Carver. Here's what he had to say. Years ago, I went into my laboratory and I said, Dear Mr. Creator, please tell me what the universe was made for. The great Creator answered, You want to know too much for that little mind of yours. Ask for something your size, little man. Then I asked, please, Mr. Creator, tell me what man was made for. Again, the Creator replied, you're still asking too much. Cut down on the extent and improve the intent. So then I asked, please, Mr. Creator, will you tell me why the peanut was made? What do you want to know about the peanut? Said the Creator. Then the great Creator taught me to take the peanut apart and put it back together again. And one day he was testifying before the United States House Ways and Means Committee. And the chairman said, Dr. Carver, how did you learn all these things? And Carver said from an old book. What book? asked the chairman. He replied, the Bible. The chairman inquired, does the Bible tell about peanuts? No, sir, Dr. Carver replied. But it tells about the God who made the peanut I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. And he discovered over 300 uses for the peanut and hundreds more from soybeans, pecans, and from sweet potatoes. So here was a man who had the right worldview, and he was not ashamed of it. Now here's another popular worldview. Matter has always existed in the past, and it will always exist in the future. In fact, matter is all there is. There is no God or spirit component to the world. Everything is material. Can you give an example of a culture that holds this worldview? Yeah, it's the USA, isn't it? Unfortunately, the United States of America. Probably more people hold this, at least in the Western world, than any other. Now, what has happened is we've gone too far from one extreme to the other. We have a naturalistic view of everything in our culture. So that leaves out the supernatural. And what do you think we will substitute for the supernatural? Now this is amazing to me. Science Digest magazine. Genesis revealed man was born from the dust of the stars. Well, it's interesting, but I want to skip to the very end here. And I quote, Now and then, in the primordial sea of the earth, collisions occurred between neighboring molecules. In some of those collisions, two small molecules stuck together to form a larger one. Then another small molecule collided and stuck, and then another, eventually, after countless millions of chance encounters, a molecule was formed that had the magical ability 
to divide itself into two copies of itself. This was the start of parenthood. This was the beginning of life. So what are we going to substitute for the supernatural? Magic. I think I'd rather believe in the Bible than magic. Now let me go on to the last paragraph. If science could find a remnant of the chemical reaction that occurred during the first million years of the church of the earth's history, some complex molecule lying on the threshold between life and non-life, the proof of the theory would be in hand. However, this is not likely to happen. No trace is left of the earth's existence then, the magic period when life appeared. Now, you know, if you were going to put science above the Scripture? What if you were living 200 years ago? Science has really changed since then. And there were some unusual beliefs about life and the world back then. And if we last another 150 years, I think probably our approach to science may be a lot different than it is now. I don't know what it will be, but I know a lot of the errors of today will be exposed. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Much of our thought and ideas in our world are based upon this naturalistic view. For instance, uh, human nature. Psychology rests on this idea. We look for physical factors that explain the way you are. Maybe it's uh, your biological determinism, your heredity, or perhaps it's just the environment in which you grew up. Back in 1970, B.F. Skinner, a Harvard psychologist, in his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, suggested that we need to get rid of the idea of the inner man, the spirit, and all that sort of thing, or we're not going to make any progress. Because the inner man really doesn't exist. We're just animals. And we've evolved to a little higher level than the rest of the animals. But unless we understand that about man, we're not going to get anywhere. If you're a mean person, your genes made you that way. That kind of takes away the hope that Scripture gives that there's a sin problem. Now, all these other things may certainly have some bearing and some influence, but basically there's a sin problem, and that sin problem can be remedied through the blood of Christ according to the Scripture. Now you have this view that's not held too much, but you still, still see it at certain times in certain areas. Uh, anybody want to guess what this is? God exists, or Spirit, but He is also matter. There's no distinction between God and Spirit. We call it pantheism. God is in everything. God's in the bubbling brook. He's in the trees. He's in the flowers. God is a part of you. The liberal theologians like to say that Christ is in everybody. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, and delivered Himself up for me. Christ is not in everybody. Christ, the Spirit of Christ, lives in Christians. There are a lot of complex and diverse views of these different variations of creation, but there is one more. How about this one? God or Spirit always existed, kind of like number one, 
But at a certain point, something happens. Let me read to you Psalm 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God existed from before the beginning. He has always existed. He always will exist. Well, wait a minute. That's the same as saying that matter always existed. No, God is not made out of matter. He's made out of spirit. And spirit is not limited by time and space and the laws of physics that govern matter as we know it. Now, something happened in Genesis. We read about it this morning. You see the little dotted line and matter comes into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the verse that we were reading, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And then God creates. And then we ask the question, does matter have an end or is it eternal? Well, it seems to have an end. If you look in 2 Peter 3, it says the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But in keeping with His promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. There's nothing in matter that makes it eternal. If it lasts, it's because God is keeping it for His purpose. But there is a great distinction between matter and between spirit. God. God is responsible for the matter. That's the scriptural view of creation. You either got to say matter was always here or it came out of nothing. And neither of those seem to fit the description of matter as we know it. Now let's quickly take a look at the process of creation. In the beginning God created. He uses the Hebrew word bara. And that word is used several times in Genesis chapter 1. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible, if you're writing in your Bibles, you might mark these verses that we're going to consider. Now it looks like if you just read Genesis, just like we read it a while ago, what does it look like? It, looked like, it looks like God is bringing some things into existence and He just speaks and it happens and it happens in six 24-hour days if you were just reading it the way it's given there in Scripture. You go through chapter 1 and you see that word used. Uh, God created the heavens and earth and then let, let, let. And then He's going to create something and He'll say let there be this and let there be that. And then He created His magnum opus, the crowning glory of His creation. And we'll see what that is. So this word create seems to imply that there was nothing and then there was something because God brought it into existence. So let's look at this creation process. When it said God created the heavens and the earth, what was there that was not there before? I think probably we could say matter was brought into existence. Much later on, God says, let there be light. And there was light. Much later on, Einstein said that matter and energy are interchangeable. So maybe when God says let, that changes matter into energy. Or vice versa. I don't know about that, but I do know that God uses that word create. And then He uses that word let. And some things are happening. 
man was brought, a matter is brought into existence. Then if you look down in verse 27, we have something very different that's coming into existence now. What is it? Conscious life is formed. Conscious life, what's that? Before we had plants and trees and grass of the field and so forth. Now we have something else, a fish, a bird, who are conscious of themselves. If you shoot at that bird, he's going to flip out of the way if you don't hit him and take off for parts unknown. They're conscious of what is going on about them. That's something different than anything that was created uh, at this point. Now let's look at verse 27. The word create is used the third time. What is coming into existence that we didn't have before? We had matter. Now we have conscious life. What is this third thing? This is the crowning glory of God's creation. Man created in God's image. That means that we are able to think and act and express emotions the way God thinks and acts and feels. If we wonder what that looks like, we turn to the New Testament and we look at Christ and we see what He's doing and how He relates to people. Man is created in God's image, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, some scientist might come, and even a Christian, a scientist who is a Christian, I should say, and tell us that it's really not the way Genesis describes it. That's not the way it happened. Well, I think I'd rather put my trust in the Scripture than in the current interpretation of science. So really, creation is a doctrinal matter. If it matches up to our current beliefs on science, well, that's a good thing. But if I'm trying to squeeze it into the naturalistic mold so it won't be so embarrassing when I stand up in some meeting of academic personnel and say, God created the heaven and the earth. You'd be hooted right out of the hall in some places, in some universities and colleges. But it looks like that's what's going on in Scripture. And that's what we want to consider in our study. Can we put our trust in the Bible? And my answer would be, if you can trust God, you can trust the Bible. Because if God is God, He can do anything He wants to do. And He can certainly preserve the Scripture right down until us today. Well, there are a couple of other things that are created that you might want to know about. One is in... Psalm 51 in verse 10. The psalmist says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Another use of that word create. What does that mean? In the New Testament, we have a more full and complete explanation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then that brings us to Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth 
Confession is made unto salvation. Well, you won't be confessing the Lord Jesus Christ unless the light shines in, as we were singing about as John described there, because an unsaved sinner is walking in darkness, according to the Scripture. And he has no interest in spiritual things. He doesn't even understand them. They're foolishness to him. And he is dead in trespasses and sins. But then the light comes in, and he is illumined, and then God creates a new heart in him, and he's able to respond. Now that brings us to the last thing that we will consider today, and this is something that you don't want to miss. Isaiah 65, 17. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now if the Bible is infallible, then what God has said will come true. And you don't want to miss the day when the universe is restored to its pristine beauty and grandeur and goodness. But here's a crucial link. If you don't have a cleansed heart, then you won't see that day. Because only those who have committed themselves to Christ, who have asked forgiveness for their sin, are going to be there for the new heaven and the new earth. So in closing, I'd like to encourage you to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Acknowledge I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. I stand guilty before God. And then, asking Christ for forgiveness of my sin and cleansing for my heart. Aiming to live a new life in Him. My living the new life doesn't give me new life, but if I do have the new life, certain things are going to flow out of that life. And finally, affirming my faith by associating with God's people in Christ's body, the church. I would invite you to complete that transaction in your heart as we pray. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank You for Your amazing creation that we really don't know much about, even through science. Thank You that uh, we can discover what You have made, and we're learning a lot more all along. And thank You that You delight to reveal to us the intricacies and mysteries of your creation. But we can grasp this matter of the creation of a clean heart. And we thank you, Lord, that that is possible, that we can turn from our sin. We can come to you and ask forgiveness. I pray if there's someone here today that is not walking with you, not walking in the Spirit, that this would be a time to recognize who you are, the great God who has made us all and who has given us the guidelines by which to live, the commandments, your laws. And certainly, Lord, we have broken those laws and continue to do so. But we thank you for the man that you sent, the God-man, Jesus Christ, your Son, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life so he could die in our place. And we thank You for the abundant life that He offers to us. Lord, I pray that uh, there might be someone who sees the need for the light is coming in, 
who would commit his or her life to you in this quiet moment. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of existence in your creation. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You have been listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation.